Hello everyone, this is Father Daniel again, back with another episode of the Chaldean Priest Show. Today we will be talking about the existence of God and what that means for creation. Let's get started. So I just realized that I said we will be talking about the existence of God. I mean... I know it's just me, but I'm assuming you're listening to this and maybe talking to yourself with me or responding to this podcast. Anyway, I meant to say I, okay? Just really quick, I just want to clear something up. So since COVID started, everyone has been using COVID as an excuse. And I think we can all come to an agreement that you can't use it as as an excuse anymore, really. I mean, because people are using it as excuses left and right that have nothing to do with COVID, you know? Oh, you know, why are you late for this meeting? Oh, you know, COVID and everything that's going on. No, that doesn't work, you know? So please stop using COVID as an excuse, okay? If you have COVID, okay, fair enough. But if you don't and you're just being irresponsible with your timing, then it doesn't work. Anyway, just a recap of what this show is all about. So what I'm doing in this show is I'm extracting theology and philosophy from the Chaldean liturgy, and I'm going through the Chaldean liturgy as it pertains to that specific cycle of whatever liturgical season it is. For example, now we are in the season of Lent, and I'll be taking from certain basilica hymns and other parts of the liturgy during this time to help us grow closer to Christ, help us understand who God is, and help us to see the fruits that really come from the liturgy that's been passed down for centuries and centuries. And today, what this basilica hymn is really targeting at is the existence of God, and not only the existence of God, but is God as creator. And I know now that has been a very hot topic, especially amongst the agnostics, the atheists, and people who reject the existence of God. So, let's get started. It starts off like this. It says, This world, in its construction, daily prepares and awakens rational creatures to the wonder and glory of that wise creator. Okay, so it starts with a foundation of us understanding that our creator created us as rational beings, okay? And we're in constant wonder and glory. And I'm going to go through this a little bit quickly because I'm going to, I usually, what I usually do is I break it down as I go through it, but now I'm basically going to read through it and get to the beef right after it. So, it continues and says, The wondrous variations which oppose one another harmonize within it, fire, water, earth, and vaporous air. But that we may not be led astray and think that because of their diversity that they have many makers. He took and made of creation one body and the forming of man, and in him made known to us that he is the Lord of all. So what the Basilica hymn really is doing here in the main premise, I think, in this hymn, 
is that it's drawing that there are not multiple gods, there is one God. And that one God is the Lord of all. So in this episode, I'm going to be talking about the existence of God and creation. But first, we need to start with the very existence of God, because we cannot understand what creation is if we don't know that God exists. Maybe you have been posed with this question at some time in your life before, maybe to a coworker, maybe to a friend, maybe you asked that yourself. I'm not sure. But it would be fair for yourself and, of course, for God, for us to draw our conclusions based on reason and based on the philosophical ideas of St. Thomas Aquinas, one of my favorite saints. He's a doctor of the church and wrote one of the most profound pieces in all of Catholicism, and that is the Summa Theologica. You've probably heard me mention that before in my show, but today I'm going to be drawing from him because he gives one of the greatest pieces on God's existence, which is called the Five Proofs of God's Existence, or also known as the Five Ways. But before I get to that, I want to draw from a quote as we begin this, just so we have a good foundation. So this is a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas. And here he's talking about what we are to expect when we're looking for understanding God's existence. He says this, Even as regards those truths about God, which human reason could have discovered, it was necessary that man should be taught by a divine revelation. Because the truth about God, such as reason, could discover, would only be known by a few, and that after a long time, and with the admixture of many errors, whereas man's whole salvation, which is in God, depends upon the knowledge of this truth. Our salvation depends on this knowledge. And that's why he mentions these three things we are to expect. That is, for it to be known by a few, very few people, it's going to take a while to be, alone, to be known after a long time and with an admixture of many errors. So I'm sure you're still going to have a bunch of questions about God's existence after this fairly brief podcast, but you know where to find me if you still have questions. So let's get started. The first proof, the f- first proof for St. Thomas Aquinas is the argument from motion. He says this, Oh, and by the way, I'm only going to be reading the first and last sentence of each proof or else this will turn into a two-hour podcast. Okay, so he says this. The first and more manifest way is the argument from motion. And he says, Therefore, it is necessary to arrive at a first mover put in motion by no other. And this everyone understands to be God. So, The first argument is motion, and the proof that he bases this on is that nothing can move itself, and this proof is a direct allusion to our senses. For example, when it comes to a flower blooming, that flower that's blooming, that's in the process of blooming, is not blooming itself. There's something underlying the motion of a flower blooming. And then another example, I guess, could be a child who is growing 
into their adolescent years. There's something that is causing that child to grow, to become more mature, for the mental faculties of that child to grow and expand. And that's what St. Thomas Aquinas is basing this off of, because if nothing can move itself, then it must be moved by something else. And that's his first premise, is that it's moved by another. And then in his second premise, in this argument, he talks about how this cannot go on for infinity, and therefore there must be an unmoved mover. And the unmoved mover is God, because nothing is moving God. And that's why he is unmoved, and he is the mover of all things. And then the second argument talks about the argument of cause of being, or also known as the efficient cause, God being the efficient cause. So Thomas says this, The second way is from the the nature of the efficient cause. Therefore, it is necessary to admit a first efficient cause to which everyone gives the name of God. So this argument has to do with causing something to be, not becoming. So it's not about change. In the first proof, we're talking about change, something being in motion. This argument has to do with something coming to be. That's why in his first premise, he mentions that nothing is the cause of its own being. For example, me, Father Daniel, I wasn't the cause of my existence, right? And I guess you could you know, continue to backtrack and say, okay, well, Father Daniel's parents were the cause of his existence, but then who was the cause of their existence? And you see how this could go on to infinity until you reach the being who is the efficient cause of all things that are created. And that is sort of the main point of this argument, is to show how there must be an efficient cause in this world. Then Thomas goes on, to talk about the argument of necessity. So this is the third proof. And he says this, The third way is taken from possibility and necessity, and runs thus. Therefore we cannot but postulate the existence of some being having of itself its own necessity, and not receiving it from another, but rather causing in others their necessity. This all men speak of, as God. So, what this is identifying is, is that there are some things that can be and that also cannot be. And that's why God is his own existence. So, nothing caused God to exist. So, there are some things in creation that come into being and go out of being. And that's why Everything that is in existence is contingent on something. And what Thomas is drawing on is that, quote-unquote, something is God. Because it takes an infinite amount of power to create. And it takes an infinite amount of power to keep things into existence. And that's who God is. God is constantly, with His infinite power, his omnipotence, keeping all things into existence. And it's amazing how 
Thomas is harmonizing his philosophy with his five proofs where he's showing the most important argument to be the first and he has this sort of gradation of importance within his five proofs. And speaking of gradation, we come to the fourth proof of the argument of full perfection or also known as a gradation of being. And this argument talks about how there are some things that are better or worse than others. For example, animals are at a greater degree of being than plants. Then man is at a greater degree than animals. Well, I guess it depends who you ask. And then you have angels at a much higher degree than men, and so on and so forth. And the idea is that this chain could only go on for so long until you reach a perfect being. And what Thomas is underscoring is that perfect being is God. So the last and final proof is an argument of divine governor, or also known as an argument of design. And this is about intelligence within nature where there is built a government. For example, he says this, the fifth way is taken from the governance of the world. Therefore, some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end. And this being we call God. You all may have heard of the concept of having a natural inclination to things. For example, an arrow cannot send itself to a bullseye. There needs to be some intelligent being that is sending it there. And that's why when Thomas is giving this example of an arrow and the archer, he's focusing on there being an intelligent being that is the cause of this very thing to happen. An arrow cannot send itself to a target. And we could continue to backtrack as to what is causing that arrow to hit the bullseye, to hit the exact target it needs to. You could go to the archer, then you could backtrack, so on and so forth, until you reach God, who is the cause of this intelligence that is happening. And, of course, 15 minutes of talking about the five proofs of God's existence, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, won't do any justice to. But just so we can get to the topic of science and the topic of creation and what science and religion have to do with each other and why they're constantly being pinned against each other. Because I'm constantly seeing on a daily basis of how religion and science don't have anything to do with each other, but have become these enemies. And we see this specifically with the famous four horsemen, who are the modern atheists of this time. You have Dennett, you have Dawkins, you have Hitchens, God rest his soul, and you have Harris, who are pushing religion away, pushing God away, and underscoring science. But religion and science are there for our own knowledge. And it's funny because the Latin word for science is Scientia, and it means knowledge, the ability to gain that knowledge. And 
the Catechism, it says how theology answers questions science does not and never could. And science studies the empirical, by definition explains only that which is already here, not what it means. So science and religion are constantly answering different questions. And I think that's why there's such a big divorce between the two is because there is a big ignorance as to what these two subjects answer. So what's the difference between the two? So science investigates questions about physical mechanisms using empirical data and experiments, so on and so forth, whereas theology asks questions about God, give or take, but also about the meaning of life and the world using the data and revelation. And for Catholics, obviously, that is centered around Scripture and capital T tradition. And amazingly enough, Pope Benedict XVI, he has this famous quote saying, the Bible is not a science book. For example, if we were to give an example of a girl crying, science would ask, what chemical reactions have taken place in this girl's brain to reduce the effect of crying and how her tears were constructed in such a way that water rolls down her face? And theology would ask, who is this girl? Why is she sad? What does crying even mean? What does suffering mean? And you see how in theology, each answer to these questions builds on itself in such a harmonizing way where once you answer one question, it opens the door for another question, and it just builds on itself. And I want to end this segment with a quote by St. John Paul II in his message to the director of the Vatican Observatory. He says this, Science can purify religion of superstition and error. Religion can help purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. Each can help the other into a more complete world where both can prosper. Thank you, John Paul II. We love you. And now to the second segment, The Lion's Den. Sam, I am. Do you like green eggs and ham? This is one of the highlights of my childhood. Is having Dr. Seuss read to me and learning how to read from these amazing books written by Dr. Seuss. But in recent times, our old friend Dr. Seuss is being canceled because during the National Read Across America Day, Dr. Seuss got canceled because of certain books that he published had racist and insensitive imagery. This has got to be the most absurd thing I have ever heard. When America makes it okay, especially California, makes it okay to start teaching about transgenderism to children in kindergarten. And the guidelines say this, by the way. 
While students may not fully understand the concepts of gender expression and identity, some children in kindergarten and even younger have identified as transgender or understand they have a gender identity that is different from their sex assigned at birth. And that comes directly, that's a direct quote from their guidelines. What has this world become where we're teaching children that it is okay to live in a fantasy where you become whatever gender you feel like and completely be dismissive of general biology, whether someone is a male or female. I don't think these children are confused. I think we're confusing them by throwing in all of this absurdity. And mind you, children... They're like sponges, right? They receive everything that is given to them. And these ideas that are given to them are received in a way where these children start to ask questions they shouldn't be asking. Like, am I really a male or am I really a female? And something so innocent, like reading Dr. Seuss across America is banned and is completely canceled because of some subjective idea of racism and imagery that Dr. Seuss used during the writing of these books. I think that's an excuse for the people that are behind this agenda to completely pervert the generations to come. And this thing that is happening should not be tolerated. This assault that is happening to truth and to our children and to generations to come is something that is not only against God, not only against the church, but against human nature. And if these are the things at stake, then we're all called to sharpen our teeth on these subjects and understand the world in an objective way, and understand truth in an objective way, and stand by the truth at all costs. So, that is my episode for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. And like always, if you have any questions, you know where to find me. See you next time.